Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Welcome, everyone. My name is Carl Qualls, and I first want to thank Patrick Ryan at the Society for um, His the History of Children and Youth for asking me to be part of the featured book series. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce my good friend and wonderful scholar, Dr. Professor Julie DeGraffenreid at Baylor University. Um, she's also head of the undergraduate uh, program uh, at Baylor, uh, the author of an amazing book that you'd all, all read, I think came out seven years ago, Julie? It did. Yeah, um, Sacrificing Childhood, about um, children and youth in the uh, Soviet Union during World War II or the Great Patriotic War. Uh, I cited, I don't know how many times in my book, Stalin's Ninos, um, but I do cite it, I didn't rip it off. <laughs> and now she's working on kind of different notions what religious upbringing means uh, in the Soviet Union. We are also both part of a wonderful workshop many years ago that came out with this book, uh, War and Childhood in the Era of the Two World Wars an amazing group of scholars uh, looking at uh, children in war um, throughout the globe, um, Asia, Europe, uh, North America. Um, James Martin, who many of the viewers uh, will probably know, was one of the editors along with uh, Misha Honig at the German Historical Institute. So um, without further ado, I'm gonna introduce uh, Julie and she's gonna grill me uh, on my book, uh, Stalin's Ninos. There it is, Stalin's yes. Ninos. Yeah, so we're really excited to get to talk to Carl today about his book, Stalin's Ninos, Educating Spanish Civil War Refugee Children in the Soviet Union, 1937 to 1951. And so I want to start, um, Carl, by asking you, it's a good question. I actually love people's answers to this question. Um, what inspired this project? Um, did it have any relationship to your first book, which was on post-war Sevastopol? Yeah, um, no. Well, yes, there's there's a relationship. Is is there any influence or, or reason for it? No, it was complete serendipity. Uh, actually, way back in 1995, I was still a graduate student looking for my dissertation project, which became the Sevastopol book, uh, Raised from Ruins, or for, excuse me, From Ruins to Reconstruction, Raised from Ruins is the name of the dissertation. Um, and it's one of those days you're in the archive and you're just waiting for things to be delivered. So I'm flipping through the catalog in the, the small state archive of the Russian Federation. Um, and I saw this index card and it said homes for Spanish youth. I was like, what is this doing in Moscow? And so I ordered up a couple of files and looked at it. I was like, wow, this is really interesting. And so finished the dissertation. And every time I'm going back to Moscow to do work, I'm seeing if anybody can read it. So for our audience that doesn't know the Russian archives, you have to sign uh, when you open up a folio of, of material. So I'm looking to see if anybody's working in this. Nobody's looking at it. And so when I finished uh, from Ruins Reconstruction, I go back, or and, and I've been looking in the secondary literature to see what had been done. There's some Spanish scholars using a lot of oral history, but the, these, this archive, which is massive, has really not been touched. And I was like, all right, I'll do that. I had kids, uh, it seemed like, and my kids are studying Spanish, like, all right, time for dad to learn Spanish. Um, so it kind of, it, it fit with my life course. Um, but as Julie knows, um, I was an urban historian, and so I had to retrain and ask people like Julie lots of questions about the history of childhood. 
because I didn't know much. You know, um, it's a it's a pretty new field in Russian history. Uh, history of education is a little bit older, um, and so that's it's, it was serendipitous. Um, I didn't think as I was researching it that it had anything to do with my book on urban reconstruction in Sevastopol after the Second World War. But then as I started writing it, I was like, wait a minute, I'm looking at how states act upon populations to try to create different kinds of identifications. Yeah. And so in, in World War II, it was, it was kind of rebuilding the city in particular ways with aesthetics, naming of streets and squares to create it as a Russian city that has a pre-imperial past and not so much of a Soviet past, but a, a kind of a military defense of the motherland. And of course, in Stalin's Ninos, it's looking at the education process and how do you take Spaniards and kind of teach them, at least in part, how to be a good uh, Soviet child and eventually Soviet citizen. So the idea of, of states um, trying to transform populations and, and form their IDs actually ends up fairly prominently in, in both books, but it was a complete accident. Yeah, that's great. I love the idea of you sort of um, um, opening up the, the folders each time and hoping that nobody's name has showed yeah. up on the folder. And Yes, yeah, like, please, nobody do this before I get to it. <laughs> nobody and look tell, at this. Yeah, and I tell okay. my students, oh, <laughs> blackout and Baylor. <laughs> okay, so let's set some context for your story. Um, remind us of the larger conflict that's going on and then um, tell us, who are the Ninos that are the subject of the book and why the Soviet Union even gets involved? Right. So Stalin's Ninos, it's, you know, it's, it's a strange sounding title because <laughs> we have the Spanish in there. So this is really the Spanish Civil War kicks off in 1936. Um, the Soviet Union, had, you know, as head of the Communist International, had been paying attention to this and trying to form a popular front with other uh, leftist groups throughout Europe. And when, especially when Germany and Italy get involved in the war in Spain uh, and none of the democracies bother to help out, um, the Soviet Union sees this as the, the first great war against fascism. And so they feel obliged to get involved. Now their involvement is much, much smaller than Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. But one of the things they're doing even before they get involved is um, collecting money at home to begin to take care of, uh, of mothers and children in mm -hmm. Spain. So this is front page news before um, the, the Ninos start being uh, shipped to the Soviet Union for the protection. So um, the story begins with the war and the devastation and the nationalists really trying to um, move in, particularly into Northern Spain, which is where most of these children come from. They're from the Basquelans by Vasco and Asturias, a uh, neighboring province. And as the, uh, the nationalist forces begin to move in there, uh, and these are very leftist working class miners and steel workers and those kind of things, um, Stalin and many other places um, begin to say, okay, we need to evacuate these uh, Bosque and Asturian children. So the Soviet Union is not the only one. Um, it takes in a, just under 3,000 children. The UK is about 4,000. 4, a lot of them go over France just because it's there, but there's also a Basque community over the border. So they mm -hmm. take in tens of thousands. Um, so starting in 1937, we begin to see a series of different shiploads of children, um, all but one coming from the North Coast. The first one comes from the Southern Coast in Valencia um, and ends up at Artec, which is a, a special um, children's camp in the Black Sea or in, in the Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea. The rest of them go from the North Coast and all end up in Leningrad or today St. Petersburg. Mm. Uh, these are children, as I said, of, of leftists. So it's pretty dangerous for them. 
Um, the first one leaves right before the town of Guernica is bombed. Uh, so some of the viewers may know that from the Picasso painting. And so it's, the parents are in fear for the children's life. So it's, a, it's an anguish um, discussion, I, I'm imagine, between many of the parents uh, and whether they should send their children or not. But the, the kids do board ships. It's a horrific experience through the North Sea, so incredibly rough. These aren't passenger ships, they're cargo ships. Um, so they're living down in the hold with rats and you know the remnants of the coal shipments and things like that. One little girl has this horrifying story. She'd just seen the, the Mask of Fu Manchu, the movie, and the ship's entire crew is Chinese. So she doesn't leave uh, her, her little hold because she goes out and she sees the Chinese in the hallway and she thinks, oh my God, something bad is going to happen. So it's, it's just such an arduous journey, but you know they're, they're fleeing for their lives. They have this, uh, this hunger and the, and the waves, and then they land in, Saint, in or Leningrad, and they just can't believe the, the welcome because the population had been um, prepared to take in what they call the little heroes of Spain. And so there's brass bands and, and other children there with flowers and chocolate. Mm. I mean, it's a huge, huge to do. And they're, they're just shocked from the first day because they're all thinking that there's going to be polar bears and snow. Um, and of course, that's not what they get, they get on the docks of Leningrad or, or in Yalta for that matter. Yeah. <laughs> such a good, such a good story. Um, Okay, so why don't you tell us something about your argument um, in Stalin's Ninos and um, the contribution that you think uh, it makes? Yeah, so for this audience, because I'm guessing the people watching this are, you know, scholars of all over the world, um, I think the, the way that it intersects with most of the viewers is that I see this as a, in, in a lot of ways, a very typical modern state approach to education. It's about using an educational system to transform and discipline children. And I don't mean discipline in the way that it was when I was growing up in the 70s, you know, getting paddled in school when I was a bad boy. Uh, it's giving them time discipline, hygiene discipline, but also discipline of thought, right? And that obviously will vary from, from country to country. Um, this, this is quite consistent um, throughout much of the, the um, developed world, whether we're talking uh, Japan in the Far East or North America or Europe, and, and we still do it with children today. We teach them how to raise their hand and stand in line in the United States and many places say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, so all these types of disciplining are a normal part of, of educational practice. Part of that is also creating a citizen, right? A, a citizen who has uh, a patriotism, but also a skill set that that country needs. Uh, most countries will have some kind of a phys physical education program to develop the bodies to be good workers, soldiers, and mothers. All this is very consistent with what the Soviet Union is doing. Um, one of the distinctions that our non-Russian viewers um, will not be aware of is um, the Soviet system at this point has just moved into what we call non-Russian education. So for those children who are not, who's, whose parents are not native Russian speakers, they're supposed to be taught in their native language. So Uzbek, Tatar, whatever. Uh, and then Russian only as a second language. That's what happens with these children. Um, they're initially taught in Castilian Spanish, which I'm guessing some of the Basque children are kind of wondering about because they should be speaking in Euskera. Um, so the, we see in these in these boarding schools that these children are, are put in. These are 
or special boarding schools just for the, the Spaniards. Some of them are attached to, to Soviet schools. Um, they get a very Soviet education, but primarily in their native tongue. And that will mm -hmm. change over time. Um, they're learning Soviet subjects, the same standard national curriculum that the rest of the children are. Um, but they're then getting Spanish geography and literature and language courses added on to that. And so that idea of the modern education with this, this slight little Russian twist that plays into some of the, the historiography and national, nationality policy in, in our field. Um, I think those are some of the, the main contributions that, um, that I've tried to work into the book and readers will decide if it works or not. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it does. Um... Okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't hear, I promise. I would, I would like to affirm your book um, and, your, and your contribution, uh, Carl. <laughs> Can you talk about, so in the book, you talk about the, um, the idea of the two homelands, right, um, for, uh, for the Ninos. And, and can you talk about how this idea of the two homelands fits in with the Soviet sort of, um, with, with Soviet aims for these uh, children? Yeah, sure. So um, as I was waiting to actually start researching this book. Uh, and I was just seeing what else is out there. Uh, I started reading the very, very small number of memoirs uh, that we have from these children. And consistently, they're overwhelmingly praising the Soviet education that they got. But mm. then they also use this no notion of two homelands. Mm. And so that got me to thinking, is this something that's happening organically? Because they are simply displaced to another, uh, another country for a while? Or is this something that's intentional? And so um, I eventually landed on a term that actually Che Guevara uh, started in a different context uh, with this no notion of a hybrid identification as Hispano-Soviets. Mm -hmm. So the Soviet Union, um, and, and this is consistent with their nationality policy, is trying to maintain national cultures while also cre creating a supranational culture that is Soviet. So an Uzbek child should be reading uh, great Uzbek uh, writers and poets, um, should be learning to sing and to write in Uzbek, et cetera. But above that, or maybe alongside of that, is a Soviet identification. Hmm. Um, initially, I don't think it was that terribly conscious in the Soviet schools because they imagined that the war is gonna end pretty soon, uh, Franco is gonna be defeated and the children will go back home. But in 1939, uh, as Franco wins the Civil War and the Second World War breaks out on the continent, although not in the Soviet Union yet, it's really clear that these children can't go back, right? They've been in the, the Marxist homeland for too long. It'll be too dangerous. Um, and there's U-boats everywhere. <laughs> so that would also be dangerous. And so they start thinking about, okay, transitioning these children to a longer term uh, within the Soviet Union. And so they need to start um, teaching them Russian more diligently than they had been, but also teaching them those Soviet attitudes of um, thinking in a kind of an international mindset, uh, the sharing and cooperation that's at, at, the, at the heart of, of communism and, and Soviet communism uh, as well. Um, those, those disciplines uh, that I talked about uh, that are so part of it, but also this notion of the happy childhood that Julie knows really well about because she turned that notion on its head in the Second World War, um, that you know, the, the party and Stalin are here to make your life joyful, All right? And this is actually quite consistent in, in modern educations and modern, modern states, protecting the child, nurturing the child, 
But then in Julia's book, um, she says, well, wait a minute, this changes in the Second World War. These children are sacrificing their childhood and they're sacrificing for something larger than them by tending the graves uh, of, the, of soldiers, uh, sending care packages to soldiers, et cetera, et cetera. That is, that is where the, the schooling begins to change, trying to get the children into that same sacrificing childhood that you noted so well in your book um, and moving away from just the happy childhood. It's like, okay, you need, to, you need to do something for us and not just be you know, a, a happy-go-lucky kid, right? This is an important moment. Um, but it's, it's also an important, important moment for your homeland, right? And this is constantly drilled into them, both by the Communist Party of Spain, which is headquartered in Moscow at this point and has been for quite some time, and then the, the Communist Party and the schools in the Soviet Union is that your education and the victory in the war then allows you to go back and take over Spain and take it back from the nationalists and create a, a country that kicks out the obscurantism of the, of the church and the, the misogyny of the nationalists and the church and build a new country that's for, for everyone. Um, so although I don't think they started with this notion of creating a, a hybrid child who, who understands and appreciates two homelands, um, it's certainly the children find it quite quickly, even before this, the education changes because they're being taken care of so well, housed so well, fed so well, given medical care. They can't believe how much they're being fed. Right? They write home letters to their parents. I wish I could send home this bread and butter because we're getting white bread, right? Which of course is the elite bread, like you wouldn't get in wartime Spain, you get the brown yeah. bread. Yeah. And you know, we're getting all these things like we have hot chocolate every day. Can you imagine? Um, and the little girl is saying, oh my God, women can do things in the Soviet Union, which of course, you know, it's in the patriarchy of, of Spain, particularly once Franco takes, in, uh, takes over, uh, there's really no hope for women to have any kind of a, a modern successful career. Yeah, I want to um, uh, get you to talk about that point just a little bit more. So in uh, at one point uh, in your book, you quote one of the Ninos uh, describing her life in the Soviet Union as a magical fairy tale. Um, there are a limited number of people who would describe their lives in the Soviet <laughs> Union as, as a magical fairy tale. Especially in the late 30s tale. and the, World War II. <laughs> Especially in the late 1930s. Yes, exactly. Um, and so... Um, you, you kind of already touched on this, but go ahead and just give us a sense, like what were they getting that say a normal kid in a boarding school is not getting? What, what's different about their lives? Yeah, so first to just frame this for our non-Russian uh, uh, viewers is these children are arriving just as the Great Purge trials are starting, mm. right? And people are disappearing left and right, being arrested as enemies of the people. Um, so this is a really dangerous time in the 1930s. And some of these kids from, come from anarchist families. And that is not a good thing in the Soviet Union. But yeah, so they see it as a magical fairy tale because they're, they're escaping the horror of bombs, right? So Rosario, I, I actually looked this up in the book to find out who this kid is. And so this uh, a girl named Rosario, we don't know her last name. And uh, she continues in that same passage, she said, suddenly we will wake up and find ourselves in the basement again and above bombs. All right, so one is just the notion that we're in a peaceful place, right? There's right. no war, obviously, until 1941. So that's magical for them. It's magical for them also, and they don't realize this until the wartime, but they're being treated better than any child in the Soviet Union. I, if you look at the, the budgets for these schools, they're far and away above uh, any type of similar boarding school 
in the Soviet Union, or, or mm -hmm. certainly kind of a regular public school, as we would call them. They're being lavished with resources, food, uh, medicine, uh, housing, clothing, etc. Um, they are being brought to cinema, theater, ballet. Musicians are being brought into the homes to give kids with, you know, particular uh, skills, private lessons. Um, you see different heroes of the Soviet come, come in, heroes of the Soviet Union come in, like uh, Valery Chikolov. So he's this great uh, aviator who's front page news all the time when these kids yeah. are arriving. He comes several times and just talks to the kids about flying and the Arctic and all this kind of stuff. And so they just have access to so many different opportunities, um, especially when they're still based primarily in, in Moscow and Leningrad. There are some in, in other places before the war. But when they're in those cities, the city is their oyster. They're being taken to all these museums and the zoos and walks and parks. Um, and, and, and on the street, everybody's like, ah, little Spaniards. Like everybody knows who these kids are. They don't know them by name, but they're, they're superstars. Yeah. Um, and that gives them a sense of, wow, yeah, we are different. It's like, yeah, if you only knew how privileged your life is. And it's because they are the future, the future anti-fascists of Spain, right? Yeah. And one scholar, um, his, his study ends in 1939. He's like, ah, oh, this is all about propaganda. It's like, that doesn't explain why these schools stay open for 14 years. And if it's about propaganda, they could have shut them down in 1939 and said, all right, go to public school. Yeah. All right. The, the longevity and the largesse of the Soviet state tells me if they had a different plan in mind, it was to really extend Soviet childhood to these kids, right? For again, for our non uh, Russian Soviet specialists, the child is so central to the Soviet project, right? It is, it is in, in, in most countries, right? But the Soviet Union is like a different thing, right? This is our future, it's the future of Bolshevism and communism and Spain in this case. And so they're just surrounded by all these opportunities, right? <laughs> so she has this, this great uh, poster behind it's one of these, uh, yeah, we, we love and protect all of our children. Yeah. You know, their happiness is so important to us. Um, the Spaniards get that, but they get it doubly so. Yeah. Because they're the little heroes of Spain. And also because in some, some cases, the Sp Spanish Communist Party is pushing the Soviet Union and say, okay, you know, can we do this? And the Soviets say, yeah, we could do that. Um, so they're just kind of wrapped with, uh, you know, all this care and, and opportunities, you know, their life isn't always great. You know, a few, the few religious ones who come, for example, like their Bible's taken away from them and, and they're like beside themselves because um, obviously they're, they're not getting a religious education in the Soviet schools. Um, some of the kids from the upper class, um, uh, upper class families that, that arrive, again, there's not many of them, but then they're given the same uniform as every other kid. Mm -hmm. I, they complain about that. It's like, I had a really nice jacket or something. Uh, the other kids is like, I have shoes. Right? <laughs> so it, it really depends on where you're coming from. Yeah. But the overwhelming majority of, of, of letters and memoirs and whatnot that I've seen, oral histories, they just gush about how well they were treated. And so I, I think it helps to develop this, this notion of the, of the, the two homelands and um, really wanting to fight and work for the Soviet Union for as long as they're there. Great. So a recent review of your book that I read said that this is an excellent introduction to any non-Soviet specialist um, to Soviet education policy um, or structure, I think that was the, was the word. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about two. <laughs> I went ahead and put them out. So there's these two sort of types of, um, or two planks of education 
that are running parallel, right? And this is Obachenya and Vaspatanya. Um, for the, just so everybody knows what we're talking about. Um, and you describe them as the two parents of the Soviet effort to educate the Ninos. And so can you explain what those two, what like the two, I don't know, arms of, or two parents of Soviet education are and how they work um, in this context? That's interesting. I don't remember calling them the two parents, but that's, that's actually Isn't pretty that good, good I like that. Yeah, nice <laughs> Yay, me. Yeah. Um, so um, one, I, I mean, I have to give a, a shout out to people like um, Tom Ewing and Larry Holmes yeah. and Ben Eckloff, like these people who who really have done so much work in the history of, of Soviet and Russian education that I'm really yeah. kind of uh, building on their, standing on their shoulders as I do this. Right, so, um, and also um, let me say something to my, um, my reviewers or my outside readers for the book. I know who you are, but I'm not gonna say just in case I'm wrong. Um, I gave my editor at Toronto, Steven Shapiro, and I said, Stephen, I think these two chapters, I have one on Abuchini and one on Vospitani, I think they're in the wrong place. He sent it out to the reviewers and the reviewers wrote back, these chapters are in the wrong place. <laughs> so they're back in the right place now. Um, so Abuchinia is kind of like the, the standard classroom education that we would understand, right? You're reading, writing, arithmetic. Um, Vospitania, um, generally we translate it as something like upbringing. Mm -hmm. So it's the stuff after class or outside of class or outside mm -hmm. of school that still is incredibly important to developing these young minds and bodies. So in Abuchinia, um, I think the, I don't know if this is the, which parent this is, um, but in Abuchinia, this is kind of training the mind. So the Soviet education is very much holistic. It's a, what we would call a liberal arts education. You need to have your math and science, but also your humanities. You need to have an aesthetic sensibility. This is why they're taking into operas and plays and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, you need to learn how to, to paint or play an instrument or something like that. So they're really constructing a, a whole child in the kind of traditional education that we would think about, the classroom education that we would think about. Um, the difference is it's, it's a bilingual uh, education, both in, mm -hmm. in Castilian Spanish and in Russian. Vospitania is going to be um, quite different for our non-Russian audience. So Vospitania is everything that's outside of the classroom. So Vospitania can be the, the after, after school clubs. So um, making model airplanes, um, the, the wireless or radio club, um, sewing clubs, uh, choirs, um, finding out the local flora and fauna. So all kinds of things uh, are part of that. And in many cases, those things overlap. So for example, kids in a science or biology class or even a geography class would be looking at flora and fauna, right? Because the, the Soviet education system believes very much in practice and not just theory. And frankly, if it's just theory, they get harangued for it, right? So taking the kids now out into the forest and looking for this, that, and the other thing and learning which mushrooms are poisonous and which ones are not. Um, so the, the disciplining of the mind happens in the classroom. And this, this includes things like a Marxist education for the, for the older children. Um, the disciplining of everything else pretty much happens outside. So it also includes the, um, what would we call them? The, the caretaker, almost always young women, the caretakers who look after the kids in the dormitories. Mm -hmm. right? 
we need to wash our linens this many times a week. We need to wash clothes. We need to sanitize the entire living area. Um, it means you have to get up on time and brush your teeth. So all of those kind of disciplining behaviors um, of becoming a modern child and a, and a Soviet child usually take place in the Vospatania realm, the out-of-class realm. The other stuff uh, happens in the Abogenia or the in-class uh, realm. Yeah. Did that answer your question, Julie? Yeah, no, that was great. Okay. Yes. Because Vasatania is this really interesting concept, right? That covers everything from hygiene to like clubs, right? Yeah, and like social everything. skills, right? I mean, it, right. And, and, but, but it is as intentionally planned Absolutely. as the curriculum, right? Of the subjects that they're taking. Yeah. And it's almost always teacher led. Sometimes it's led by the, these caretakers of the school, but it's almost always teacher led. Like I remember uh, actually a couple different students told a very similar story of, I believe it was a history teacher, because of course history teachers are the best, um, would take them on long walks out into the forest and the fields and whatnot and, and tell them about Russian literature, right? Not a literature teacher, a history teacher. And that, that again, that's part of that social skills, right? You, you respect the authority of the teacher, but the teacher is an intimate part of, of, of um, you becoming who you are, right? It's not an antagonistic relationship, especially after the late 1930s. Mm. Right when teachers are kind of reset, recentered as a authority figure in the classroom, where, where before that it was like it was almost like kids running wild. <laughs> um, right. So that that you know a, a whole series of social skills, and this also meant playing football or soccer with with uh, Russians um, down the street, or or going to summer camps with the Russians. So they're kind of learning who their Russian or Soviet um, counterparts are at the same time. So our work has overlapped um, a lot when it comes to, to World War II and, and mm. the war. And uh, the war does loom large in the story of, the, of Stalin's Ninos. Mm. Um, so can you talk about the ways that the war serves as, as sort of a turning point? Yeah, so um, this second violent displacement is very disrupting to their lives. So mm. those first couple of years, depending if they came in 37 or 38, some came, came in 39 as, as it was clear that Franco was gonna win. Um, the war changes in a lot of ways. So first in 1939, so the Winter War uh, in, uh, in Finland, begins to get the Soviets um, learning that all Soviet children, and this includes the, the Spaniards, have to be physically prepared for war. And so you see physical education taking a much uh, more important part in the school but also things like civil defense, like how do you put on your gas mask, uh, which herbs are medicinal, medicinal that's around your school, uh, things like that. Um, really it's 1941 in June uh, when the Nazi forces invade. Uh, most of these, kill, well, all these children are in the Western reaches of the, of the Soviet Union. Mm. Uh, most of the homes are in and around Leningrad and Moscow, but there's also some in, in Kiev and further in Southern Ukraine. And not so- Not a good place to be. <laughs> yeah, not a good place to be in, in June, right. July and August. And so they're displaced with, you know, factories and children and people. And so uh, eventually they're put on trains to go east, further into the interior, away from the front lines. Some of them get lost. Uh, one girl ends up wandering all the way to the country of Georgia, thousands of miles. Um, at some point she loses her shoes and she's barefoot going up and down the Caucasus Mountain. Mm -hmm. And she actually has uh, rocks embedded in her feet and she is being, um, for lack of a better word, sexually harassed by both Red Army soldiers and 
and uh, German soldiers at the mm -hmm. same time. Um, the kids who do are able to stay with their groups, their schools are, are relocated en masse. Um, in some cases, for example, um, the uh, Volga Germans, so these are, are Germans who came over in the late 18th century, settled along the Volga River to become uh, farmers. Because they're German speakers, they're seen as an enemy people as the Germans are, are coming. So they're moved from their homes. The, the Spanish children now take over their, their homes and schools, but the coordination is bad. And they act, in some cases they arrive before the Germans left and there's a lot of throwing things at the Spanish children and whatnot. Hmm. So this displacement is harsh. And this, this the, the, um, the evacuation, Re Rebecca Manley has written a lot about this uh, as well. The evacuation is just horrific, whoever you are. Uh, food is in scarce supply. The rail cars you're on are unheated. Sometimes they're traveling for three and four weeks. They're being pushed along by each local official saying, we can't, we can't house them, we can't house them. Right. Um, and so they can then get to these places and there, there's no food, there's a, there's a, a hostile population to them. Uh, and they start, you know, taking up the resources of the local population. So one of the things they begin to realize is, wow, we were really privileged for those three years or so, four years, depending on when they came. Um, we didn't realize how bad it was in a lot of the Soviet Union, particularly in the, in the hinterlands. Uh, two, they uh, start to, well, I don't think they realize how much hostility there was in some of the population. It, we don't have evidence that it's, it's a wide scale, but we do have some letters coming from the local population saying, hey, why are these kids getting so much? And then our good uh, Soviet kids are not getting as much. Right. And it's that competition for resources in, in a place where there are no reason, all the resources are going to the front. Um, another big disruption is that a lot of their teachers are being moved into factories to create war material or are going to the front. So there's a lot less supervision. And the Spanish Communist Party officials, when they do their, their tours of the homes, realize that these kids who are so well-disciplined or fairly well-disciplined in the first couple of years are now starting to lose that because there just aren't enough adults in their life. Uh, and trying to get the Soviets to put more people in the house, putting more Spaniards in the house, although some of those Spaniards are, are politically suspect in the, in the Soviet uh, view. The other really big shift with the war is those children who are 14, right? So that's when the typical Soviet education in seventh grade or 14 years old, um, most of them are moved to factory labor, unless they are particularly good academically and then they can continue on into 10th grade and then university later. Um, there's actually an experiment before the war breaks out in the Soviet Union in 1940. They opened two youth schools, uh, particularly for these kids. And so they're supposed to be working part of the day and going to school part of the day. Most of these kids didn't really like the going to school part. They weren't the most academically inclined. Um, and so those were both shut down within a, well, less, less than a year. Um, so now we have two cohorts of Spaniards where they all used to be under the same ministerial umbrella and had that supervision of the Ministry of Education. Um, now some of them are out in factories. And so the Soviets begin to try to figure out, you know, what do we need to do? And they decide, well, we, we need to continue their privileged lifestyle, even in these factory dormitories. So their rations are better. They get a much higher stipend than the equivalent level of worker um, in, their, uh, in their factory. Uh, typically, there's a, a member of the Spanish, Spanish Communist Party there who's kind of mentoring them 
um, and continuing the, the language acquisition, but also kind of the, the, the Marxist communist uh, training at the same time. And so the world really diverges at this point. And we can see this, it's hard because we can't trace all of them directly. So we kind of look at, at aggregate. Um, but the, the younger children, the children who were really young when they came in 1937-38, go to university after the war. Right? They live in the houses during the war, boarding schools during the war, and then off to university in much higher levels. Those who came later and for whom then language acquisition was probably harder, they go to factories and don't get higher education. Right? They get skills training right, to be a, a welder or bricklayer or something like that, but they don't go to university. And so I think that, that if we could track those cohorts better, I think we would find some really, really interesting things about how important it is if you're going to shift the, the, the culture and the education of a child, how early you have to do that, right? Mm -hmm. Here, we're, we're both in the United States where we don't teach foreign languages until it's much too late, right? Yeah. This idea of getting a, one of the four and five-year-old Spanish students, within weeks, they're writing letters home, uh, writing partially in Russian. I mean, it's really a patois, uh, which uh, one uh, scholar, Emma uh, uh, Colomino, um, which she calls it Resignol, right? So Russian and Espanol, Resignol. I thought that was really clever of her. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good book too. Um, so we now see two very different cohorts uh, and therefore their, their adult lives, which I don't trace as much, I, I pretty much end with their, their uh, education in the schools. Um, their adult lives would have very, very different trajectories. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it makes sense. Um, and it is really, I mean, extraordinary when you think about um, just the sort of deprivation in general during the war, that there's still a group that's getting extra. I mean, yeah. that, that it just speaks to um, either the power of the connections mm -hmm. that they have, right? Or the sort of commitment to this project. Um, yeah, and I think it's both. actually, yeah, I, I think it's actually both of those. Yeah. That the, the Soviets now see that commitment as even more important, right? Because fascism seems to be spreading, right? So we have to, we have to nurture children who have the linguistic abilities to go to Spain. Later, they actually, some of them will go to Cuba and other places in Latin America, right? But they also have the good internationalist Marxist mindset. Yeah. From the Spanish side, it's really important to them or excuse, because there is a Spanish Communist Party, there's two advocates for these children, right? So there's the Russian um, educational bureaucracy, but there's also the Spanish Communist Party, right. where the average Soviet kid, they don't have that second advocate. Yeah. And so I think that those, those two things help to explain um, why that, even though the, you know, they're eating a, a, a dead camel at one point in, in Sarata, right. who's, who's blind, right. Uh, right. And couldn't couldn't find food in the snow, and the ca camel just falls over, and these kids eat camel for I don't know how many days. Right. Um, so life is tough, but they realize that life is much tougher outside of the boarding schools. Yeah. All right. Um, so how well would you say? So if the if the 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 point was to produce um, uh, a citizen that saw themselves as um, you know, with these sort of two homelands, well-educated, cultured, um, in both native language and in Russian, how well do you, do you believe that the boarding schools work to prepare them for uh, independent life after mm -hmm. the boarding schools? Yeah, so I think it depends on which two of these groups, cohorts, uh, we talk about. Yeah. So um, the youngest children, 
I think are prepared really well. Um, they seem to, you know, again, we can't trace all of them well, but they seem to merge into Soviet life much better. Um, there's a fairly high instance of, of intermarriage between Soviet uh, citizens and these, these uh, Spanish niños. Well, not niños when they're getting married, obviously. Right. Uh, that's illegal in the Soviet Union, too. <laughs> Russians love their children, too, but not that much. Yeah. <laughs> um, the older children, uh, the, the youth, uh, I think they have a harder time of it. They have le uh, less time in the school. So their Russian is, the Russian language isn't as strong. They enter the work world, which is pretty harsh during the war. Um, and they probably feel less of that, that blanket of security that had been created in the boarding schools. But again, if you look at the memoirs and oral histories of both of these cohorts, it's phenomenal how consistent they are in talking about how well they were raised and educated. They, they, um, they go above and beyond to lavish praise on the Soviet Union for all the work they did. And you know, this isn't just brainwashing, right? This is something we usually think in the West, like, oh my God, they're brainwashing all these kids. Yeah. No, they, they have opportunities they would have never had in Spain, particularly, again, the, the, the young women. Right. They can become professors, they can become engineers, they can become doctors, they can do all this stuff, none of which would have been allowed in Spain, or at least not in, in any, any substantial numbers. Right. And so they, they understand that they have a different freedom. They're not bound by their class in a way that they would, would have been in Spain. The idea of nationality, like you, you see some, some accounts where the Asturian children and the Basque children are fighting, right? Because in the war, generally before the war, they're, they're kept in different homes. During the war, they're oftentimes thrown into the same homes and they start fighting. Yeah. That, that is a big no-no in the Soviet Union, right? All nationalities are equal. Right? Of course, the Russians are slightly more equal than others. Slightly more equal than others, right? Yeah, but that, that notion that nationality really doesn't matter, right? It's great for us to be able to celebrate our national culture, but beyond that, it doesn't, it doesn't have any, any essence of meaning. That can't happen in Spain, right? Especially, you know, like a Basque or a Story or, or a, a Catalan or something, where these kind of national identities are so strong in Spain, and the Soviet Union is trying to, to tamp those down in the Soviet Union. Yeah. So, especially when they go back to Spain, uh, which some of them do, about half of them do, um, they begin to see that what they're being taught in the Soviet Union about the West, right, the, the evil West is real, right, because Spain is less educated, hmm. it's poorer, hmm. right, this is the 50s, so Franco's still there, it's a violent nationalist authoritarian regime, right, and so the Soviet Union looks really good, it's a place where they had opportunities, where they moved out. They had a great education. And Spain looks like this backwater. And so especially for those that go back, and about half the students go back, and then half of those turn around and go right back to the Soviet Union because, like, oh, we can't live in Spain. Like, this is a, this is a horrific little country we're in. Um, they really see this with, with eyes wide open. It's like, oh, that wasn't just something we were being told. Like, this is real. Right? The Soviet right. Union is a, it's a much more advanced place than, than Spain. Right. So I think it's, it's pretty successful. And we even see this in the, in the case of, you know, when we were talking earlier, this idea of the, of the two homelands, right? They deeply believe in their need to stay connected with both of those countries, but also to work to protect and improve both of those countries, even though, you know, the, that, the ability to do that in Spain just isn't, isn't in the cards at that point. Yeah. 
Ooh, perfect segue. So can you talk about the legacies of this program? Hmm. Um, and what do we know about the Hispano Soviets? Okay. So I'll give you one speculative one to start because I don't have okay. good evidence yet. Yep. Um, so for our non, uh, non-Russian specialists out there, there is a very well-known international school uh, outside of Moscow. Children from all over the world, Mao child went there for a while, for example. Um, they actually brought language teachers from these Spanish homes to figure out how to do second language instruction. And I, I would submit, although I can't prove it, that international education in the Soviet Union changes quite dramatically, particularly in kind of the, this boarding school sense um, because of the, the 3,000 or so um, Spanish children and their experience. They learn so much. They're constantly having pedagogy um, workshops, Soviet, Spanish, Soviet and Spanish together. Um, and if anybody's out there, I would ask you to look, <laughs> look for this because I, I, th- I think there's, there's got to be something there. Again, I can't yeah. prove it. Um, so how else does it affect the Hispano-Soviets? Um, again, going back to the kind of opportunity and uh, the greater gender equality, I think that's one of the biggest ones. Um, very few of them came in really religious. Some of them did. It's not clear how many of them try to um, continue to practice it, at least in their head, because obviously they can't practice it uh, openly in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union as uh, Roman Catholics. Um, so I, I think that that way of thinking, uh, of, of believing over thinking, right, the, the, the idea of, of reason and evidence is really drilled into them. So I think they really struggle, especially those that go to Latin America or to, to Spain, of kind of being back immersed in a world that is so... Um, focused on the, the kind of Christian uh, ethos and cosmology and way of thinking and behaving. Um, now I'm blanking on your original question. Oh, um, do we know anything about the Hispano-Soviets? Oh, right. Where they go or? Right. So um, actually, this is remarkable. Just two days ago, I um, got an email out of the blue from the daughter of one of these women, one yeah. of these girls at the time. She's 94. She's in Puerto Rico. Um, she was one of the first children, along with her brother, who were able to leave the Soviet Union. They left in 1945 or 1946. I don't remember her, her story right off the bat. And they went to Mexico, where the rest of the family had, had relocated. So um, a very, very small number, we're talking maybe two dozen at most, leave at the very end of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. It's really the middle of the 1950s that we begin to see more of that movement. Um, it's clear Franco's not going anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we have um, just over a thousand who go back to uh, to Spain, and as I said, about half of those return to the Soviet Union. Their life, their entry into that that world is really different because they come laden with all these Soviet products. I one one of these guys uh, tells a story. He came back with a television. Spain didn't have television yet, <laughs> and they're like, yeah. oh, what is this? They come back with washing machines. Like that was not seen uh, in Spain in the in the mid nineteen fifties. Um, some of them, and again, this is a story that needs a lot more work, but I wasn't allowed to go to Cuba to, to do this. Um, some of these uh, children who are engineers, radio specialists, agronomists, etc., cetera, um, go to Castro's Cuba just after the revolution to help build up um, the, the new uh, Castro state. Hmm. 
Hmm. I, I, I'm hesitant to call it communist because, of course, he wasn't a good communist when he started, right? right. <laughs> it's not until right. after 1961. He's like, yes, the Soviet Union is my friend. It's a good um, opportunity. <laughs> yeah, right. but the, and this is, this is exactly what the Soviets were training them for. Right? Sure. They have linguistic abilities, but they also have these specialized educations. So they can go and develop Cuba and other Latin American countries and, and you know, Spain uh, eventually, although uh, they're not giving those opportunities because the repression by Franco was, was simply too great for them to carry on with a lot of their, uh, their work. So it did work, but it was on a much smaller scale than I think the Soviets uh, would have hoped for. Yeah. Um, there are some, one of my favorite stories, uh, fortunately he was, he was one of the very few memoirists we have, um, he was trained, I guess we'd call him as a, as a radiologist. And he goes back to, uh, to Franco, Spain, and Franco is quite ill at this point. Um, and here is this Nino who snuck into Spain illegally, came back to Spain illegally. Uh, and, and Franco has been haranguing about these, these children and like they're given special cards, so they can be distinguished from regular uh, Spanish citizens. Um, and he's the one who's actually beginning to diagnose Franco's illness. Right? He's like having to keep his mouth shut so that he's not put into prison again, uh, having been uh, too many years in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Such a good story. Um, okay, let's zoom out a little bit. So what, what do you think that your work tells us um, more broadly about education, about institutions and children in the mid 20th century? Yeah, um, states transform. Yeah. Um, I think certainly after World War One, I, I, this is at the center of my teaching, really. Almost everything I teach is, okay, how, how are states trying to transform populations? Hmm. Schools are one of those primary actors, right? Public health systems, all kinds of that stuff are, are part of that process, of course, too. Um, but I think the, the modern educational practices that we see in the 20th century and now into the 21st century are about training, training young minds and bodies. Um, patriotic education is huge, particularly during the war and interwar period, but certainly after the war, you know, as a child of the Cold War, right, I got more than enough of my patriotic education uh, growing up in the United States. This is, this is consistent in most countries. Yeah. So I think that, that idea that um, educational systems, educational institutions are um, are without agendas, I just don't think it holds uh, water. Um, that there's something objective in the ed education, that it doesn't have any greater purpose than just educating the mind, maybe keeping the body healthy in PE classes. I just, just don't think that that holds water. Um, you know, obviously my, my specialty is in Russia and the Soviet Union, but you know, taking a page from Julie's book, I made sure that I looked at other, other countries uh, at the same time. It's like, okay, what are they doing? And it's, it's really clear. That particularly in the war, but even before and after, um, countries are using schools in order to create their ideal of what those children should be. And those ideals are different from country to country, but they share a lot of things. Healthy bodies, uh, strong minds, right? What that education looks like is, is a little bit different. And patriotic citizens. Right. Um, it's a little bit different in, in this case because those patriotic citizens are not really citizens. A lot of them do take citizenship. Um, but you know, that, that notion, again, the two homelands is kind of the, the, the place filler for citizenship, right? Um, because they're learning to be um, good members of two different communities. And so I, th I think that's one of the things that's um, 
that was most striking to me as I did this, that it looks so similar yeah. to what we see going on in, in Germany, France, England, Canada, United States, Japan. Yeah. Um, how they do it is a little bit different, uh, but their goals are pretty, pretty similar. I really wish you'd pick something more relevant to write on because really we hear nothing about this today yeah. about education and the shaping of education. I don't, I don't, anyway. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things here, right? An education system is, you know, it's there to protect children, but it's also there to use children. Right. Right. The, the, these children are being weaponized. And I'm not saying these children, the Spanish in particular, children are being weaponized, right? Sure. We see this, unfortunately, at this point, you're right, we're in, still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Children are being weaponized in the science and the anti-science movement. Should we wear masks? Should we be vaccinated? Right? Children are at the center of that. Yeah. Right? It, it, because we don't let them speak for themselves, right? And this is part of the problem is, as this audience knows, doing the history of childhood and the history of children are very, very different things because children oftentimes don't have those voices or their their voices are silenced or or shouted above by the parents who think that they're speaking in their best interest when oftentimes they are, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, what kind of challenges um, did you encounter pursuing this project? Um, yeah, so challenges, um, a lot of material. Yeah. So that just takes time, right? And I teach at a liberal arts uh, institution at Dickinson College. So I have a very finite amount of time that I can get abroad, right? Russian materials aren't digitized in the way and the way they are for an American historian in, in a lot of cases. Um, so it means time in country, and in my case, time in in two or three countries uh, mm -hmm. doing that. So it was kind of a fit and start, like, okay, can I take uh, a month or two months away from my family in the summer and do a little bit of writing during the winter break and things like that, because our teaching load is, is pretty heavy. Uh, a second one is, I initially I wanted to do oral interviews to kind of an oral history component to this. Yeah. One, it had, been, it had been done pretty well, but two, when I was reading the oral histories uh, by my Spanish colleagues, I realized that the interviewees couldn't answer the questions that I was most interested in, hmm. right? Because educational practices are so prosaic that we don't recall them in our adulthood. Hmm. Right? And the first um, oral interviews aren't being conducted until 50 years after the fact. Yeah. Um, first memoirs aren't being written until 50 or 60 years after the fact. And so they remember the great highs and lows, right? But I'm like, okay, so what were you taught in your history classes? They just don't remember that. Um, and my, my oral Spanish wasn't up, up, to, up to scratch, right? I, I started teaching myself Spanish in my 40s. That's not an ideal time to, <laughs> to, to do that. Uh, and Catalan, because there's a, a, a small bit of Catalan uh, that I wanted to work with too. Um, that was another um, factor in kind of slowing this down. Um, it was pointed out to me actually by one of my outside readers. I didn't realize that um, I use seven languages for this book. Yes. Um, Russian and English, I'm, I'm pretty good with those. I can handle those. I've been working <laughs> with both those for a while. Um, French and German, uh, of course, reading knowledge of those for a good European uh, historian, uh, but then bringing in Spanish and, and Catalan, which were very new to me. And Catalan was like last minute. Um, crash course uh, in trying to learn enough that I could just scrape by in an archive. Um, that slows you down and yeah. it makes you question yourself. Like, did I really understand this? Yeah. So I was going to a lot of my colleagues here and saying, okay, you know, here's the, here's the original text. Am I translating that right? 
Yeah. And, you know, I start the, start the book with a poem and poetry, of course, is notoriously difficult to translate. And I was kind of going back and forth. And one of my Spanish colleagues said, you know, it should really be like that. It's like, no, but then you miss this, this little nuance of what it's actually about. Like his was really good Spanish, obviously better than mine, but it's missing this nuance. So I translated a slightly different way. Um, but yeah, so that was, uh, that was something that, that slowed me down quite a bit, but of course it couldn't be done indifferently. I mean, I don't, right. I don't believe in doing history through translation. Right. Uh, you, a, a lot of the Spanish scholars, um, some like Ima Colomina has taught herself enough Russian to, to get by, but a lot of the others it appears that they were working with translators in the archive. And you can see that they also don't have an understanding of the archival system and the, the bureaucratic structures. They don't know where to look for different types of evidence. Um, but they also don't read enough, far enough down into the files, right, to the, to the local level, the, the school's quarterly reports. They look at the, the annual reports in aggregate for all the schools. Well, anybody that's, that's done any archival work knows that like, the closer you get to the event, the more detail you're going to get. It's not necessarily um, more correct or less correct, but you just get a lot more detail. And so it was really important for me to get a, a reading knowledge of, of Spanish in particular, even though the vast majority of these materials are in, in Russian and in Moscow, um, there are some in, in Spain um, and the memoirs, uh, of course, were in Spanish and the oral histories are in Spanish. So it was important for me to get that and not have to rely on somebody else. Uh, although I did initially rely on, on some of my advanced students. Uh, I was like, okay, can you go over these, these books and like, just tell me if there's things that I should be interested in <laughs> while I'm beginning to learn how to, to read Spanish yeah. better. Yes, no, that's great. I mean, it's it's a big challenge with comparative or transnational work, but it's essential. I mean, absolutely, and, and the payoff is huge. I mean, so. yeah, and I think more more and more historians, particularly in our field, are realizing the the importance of transnational comparative. Yeah, um, you know, our generation of scholars in Russian and Soviet history, and, and even more so those that are younger than us, um, understand that we have to begin to dialogue with those outside of Russian history because we've been marginalized. For so long. We're not considered to be European or we're kind of outside the, the norm of the development of history. And I, I hope one thing that, that this book will do will begin to show that the Soviet Union isn't that far outside of the norms of history at that time. That's good. So what's next? Either what's next? this wide open. So <laughs> you want to make a comment on the topic, on the field, yourself? What, the, what's next? The question we all dread. The question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Lots of dreams and aspirations. Oh, that's, that's good. See, um, very nice. So most immediately, uh, what I'm really excited on is uh, I'm going to start an oral history project on um, Bosniaks in America. We've got a sizable Bosniak community in tiny little Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And so I'm teaching a course next spring on the oral history of the uh, Bosnian refugees in America. And the second half of that, uh, I've already made contacts with our, our local mosque, the imam, and some of the leaders there. And they're absolutely stoked for this. And so my students are going to go in and start uh, gathering some oral histories. Um, okay. Hopefully that will become a longer term project that maybe becomes some kind of a, a mini documentary. Uh, maybe it's just collecting the archives like Baylor's. I was looking at Baylor's oral history where, where yeah. you also have some Bosniaks in there. Yes. Um, maybe it becomes just a, a collection of, of stories that other scholars can work from. Yeah. Um, the other book project that has been on my mind for almost 20 years is uh, comparing the um, interwar period, particularly the 1930s in the United States, Italy, Germany, and the Soviet Union. It's again, mm -hmm. this, this idea that modern states are different and that 
in my view, ideology doesn't matter that much, right? In that they're still doing things, they're operating and trying to transform their populations, whether they be Nazi, fascist, uh, democratic free marketers or, or Soviet communists. They are transforming nature. They're transforming children. Um, they're transforming aesthetics. And especially in this time of crisis in the 1930s, both with the, the depression that hits all of them, except really the Soviet Union doesn't, um, and then the war, you see these states operating in very, very similar ways, right? The New Deal is like, it's a lot of executive power, right? And it, doing things that I generally agree with <laughs> and I'm benefiting from in a few years of social security that still exists. Um, but they're, they're all um, elevating the executive so that they can more efficiently operate on the population, uh, bring the population out of, out of a calamity with the, the crash in 29. Um, it's a class I've been teaching for, for two decades um, and I've always thought about writing it. And now you know, I can't get to Russian archives at the moment. Um, so that's, that's one of the projects that I'm, that I'm starting right now. Uh, and I'm teaching that class again right now with my students. Um, and so it's, it's fun to kind of put this in the front of my agenda uh, for a change. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Carl, thank you so much for talking to us about your book. I'm going to hold it up one more time. So here it is once more, Stalin's Ninos by Carl Qualls, published by University of Toronto Press, just came out last year. Yes? Yep, indeed. Okay. Right before we all shut down. Right before the <laughs> In shutdown. In February 2020. Good. So I, I will tell my viewers, I will, I will inform you all when I publish my next book, because my first book came out right before the, the crash. <laughs> um, and so libraries stopped buying both of them. <laughs> so I'll warn you so that you can pull all of your money out of your retirement. That's right. Whatever book three is. The market will crash as soon as my book is ready to come out. <laughs> uh, thank you, Julie. Uh, so good to talk to you. I wish obviously we're in the same place. Yes. Um, but I really, I, I so respect your work and to have somebody of your caliber uh, asking me these questions is really meaningful to me. So thank you so much. Yes. Great. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcast. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.